From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 12052712985 and you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams Michael McCall producing the program your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Ace McKay handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you might be very confused momentarily, but you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host today, filling in for Father John Tregilio, who is back from Rome but has a faculty meeting today at the Mount, at uh, Mount St. Mary Seminary, and uh, our adequate more than adequate guest host for the second week in a row. We are so blessed to have Deacon Harold Burke Sivers with us. How are you? I'm doing well, Jack. Great to be with you again. Hey, so listen, this is the season of Lent, and, and I'm going to go off script here a little bit. And, you know, we are called by Holy Mother Church to practice uh, corporal works of mercy and spiritual works of mercy, and especially during this season of, of Lent, prayers, fasting, and almsgiving. And I think people get the prayers down pretty good. Some people get the fasting down pretty good. But what they don't realize is that the fasting is supposed to be tied to the almsgiving. You should be able to take the resources that are being saved by the fact that you're fasting, and you can help apply those to almsgiving. And you're coming to us live today from St. Henry Parish in Lake Charles, Louisiana, a magnificently Catholic part of the United States, their French heritage, their Catholic heritage. And these poor folks, they took a direct hit from back-to-back hurricanes, and you said they're still recovering. Yes, there are many people who are still not in their homes. In fact, in the parish here, um, the uh, parish offices uh, have been uh, destroyed. In fact, they, they, uh, they're they not going to be able to renovate them. They have to be torn down. And so they set up these makeshift cubicles and classrooms inside of the parish hall. So I, I took a tour yesterday, and I was like, wow, you know, and, you know, we have these, these problems in our parishes about, you know, where we're going to put this and that. And then you have issues like the ones they have down here. And so many of the uh, the parishes here who are still recovering uh, and many parishioners who are still not in their homes two years after the hurricane. So, uh, yeah, this, uh, you know, we, we may be sacrificing during Lent, but there are still people here who are actually living Lent every single day. So I would encourage anybody look up St. Henry Parish uh, uh, on the Internet 
and uh, and if you were looking for maybe a creative or a different way to help uh, uh, celebrate's not the right word, but to help firm up your Lenten practices this year as we prepare for the celebration, the greatest feast of the church, the Easter celebration, um, I would encourage you to help support the efforts because I'll tell you something, folks. We find one of the reasons that we find ourselves in the situation we find ourselves in the United States today is because we have abdicated our responsibility as church to the government. And this is an opportunity for you to support the parish who, I promise you, is far better equipped to help the people of Lake Charles than the government is. So uh, I would encourage you to look up uh, St. Henry's Parish and help support the good folks of Lake Charles, Louisiana. Got an email here from Brenda, and she wants to know, Deacon, why did Jesus not say the same to both thieves next to him on the cross? You will be with me in paradise. Yeah, so um, there seems to be an apparent contradiction with the two thieves on the cross. Because you remember, there's one gospel account that says that they were both mocking him, and then, of course, one becomes the repentant thief. And so as people say, well, look at the contradiction. Well, it's not a contradiction. It, it probably happened that both at the beginning of the crucifixion, both of them did mock him. But then what did one of the thieves witness? He heard Jesus praying Psalm 22, right, which is a messianic psalm of fulfillment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was praying that psalm, one, to let the people know that that psalm was being fulfilled in their hearing. Right. Uh, remember, that psalm also says they tear holes in my hands and my feet and lay me in the dust of death. I can count every one of my bones. These people stare at me and gloat. They throw dice at my clothes. Right. And he was also praying that psalm to show uh, that God is, of course, not forsaken us at all. But we in his human nature, he was allowed to experience that that emptiness and that isolation and that desolation that we've all experienced when we're going through something really difficult and we feel that God is not there. Jesus was allowed to experience that in his human nature in order to redeem it, to show that not even the death, the worst effect of sin, is more powerful than God's love. That repentant thief also saw Jesus forgiving the people who were killing him. <laughs> he, he, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So he saw Jesus living the gospel, witnessing to the beauty and truth of faith from the cross in Jesus' last act of evangelization, and he was converted. The other, the, the other thief was not. So that's why you know, when Jesus heard the words of repentance, the, he, again, he, Jesus is divine mercy itself. So he extends that mercy to the repentant thief, to the repentant heart of the man who witnessed God um, uh, showering his love and mercy upon uh, those who were there at the crucifixion, and he extends that mercy to him and assures him that he will be with him uh, in paradise. Evidently, the other thief did not repent. So that's why he extends uh, that uh, the, the, uh, the invitation to heaven to one and not to the other. Uh, Diane says that she's doing 33 days to morning glory, and Father Gately mentions degrees of glory in heaven. And she wants to know if this is true, and if so, where can she read more about it? Yeah, de degrees of glory in heaven. So um, there's thought that uh, there's different degrees in heaven in the sense that the different clo uh, being um, close closeness to God. So, for example, um, 
the, those who have been declared saints by the church, right? The, you know, their, their level of holiness brings them to serve closer to God. And maybe someone who maybe just eked in at the last minute <laughs> into heaven, you know, they're still in heaven. They're still with God. Everyone still enjoys the, enjoys the beatific vision, but they may be uh, a little further back, if you will, from God. It's kind of like the hierarchy of angels, right? You have the cherubim and the seraphim who serve closest to God, right? And then at the bottom uh, of the nine ranks of angels, you have the uh, p- dominions and, and thrones and, and those as well. Again, they're all uh, um, in the beatific vision serving and, and uh, with God and being with him forever in heaven. But again, there's different degrees. And so there's thought that with human beings, there's also not different degrees, but different um, levels of closeness to God in heaven, depending on the sanctity with which you lived on earth. And you could read more about that. Uh, I think the catechism talks about that. Um, and there's some also, I can't, off the top of my head, I'm not sure of the spiritual works where they talk about those different uh, degrees of heaven. But I'm sure Father Gately may reference some of that in his book. And just a couple minutes left here in this first segment. Sarah wants to know, how does the Church rectify passing around saint relics when they require that we respectfully inter our loved ones? Isn't keeping someone's ashes the same as having a relic? Yeah. So, th- yeah, that's one of those strange things <laughs> that happens in a church that kind of leads you to scratch your head like, what? You know, um, but the, here, here's uh, the thing about relics. Yes. So um, when the church, for example, allowed um, cremation, right, you said you have to keep all of the ashes together um, and they have to be either put in a uh, buried in the ground, just like a, a, a full body, you know, interred in the earth or into a uh, mausoleum. Right. Um, uh, but all the ashes had to be kept together out of respect for the body, right? So you can't just throw them in the ocean or plant a tr- you know, plant them under a tree or something like that. Um, so the, what about the, the relics of the saints, right? So in the case of the relics of the saints, we are respecting their body. They don't take out the whole body. They take out parts of them so that they could be venerated, right? So we're talking about people here, um, who whose level of sanctity and holiness was so great um, that it's not enough just to, you know, pray for them on their feast days and things like that. So we we take parts of, of, of their bodies and we and we venerate them. In a sense, they're still with us, you know, and, and again, th- they're kept in reliquaries. They're not just, you know, brought out and exposed for, for any reason whatsoever. Um, it's usually doing at p- specific times or there are places, for example, there's a it's EWTN's Open Line Monday, today with Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or... Send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, Wings is EWTN's weekly e-newsletter. You can find out about EWTN radio and TV shows, items from EWTN's religious catalog, and a whole lot more. To sign up for Wings, just log on to EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Wide open phone lines for you. Deacon Harold Berg-Sivers is in the house. If you've got a question, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833 833- 288-EWTN, that's 
3986. Um, Sam wants to know if a priest can deny you receiving the Eucharist on the tongue. Uh, no. So it's it's up to the person receiving uh, the, the Blessed Sacrament how they want to receive. The church allows, uh, well, two, basically two ways. You can receive on the tongue or you can receive in the hand. Now, um, if you re- now uh, uh, if you receive by intinction, that's where uh, they take the the the, uh, the host and they dip it into the precious blood, and you know they'll say the body and blood of Christ. You can only receive that uh, on the tongue, um, but the church allows both. If you want to receive in the hand, you place one hand over the other hand, typically your left hand over your right hand, because what you're doing is you're creating a throne upon which the, the, the king of the universe is, is sitting to so receive him in a very reverent way, and you consume the Eucharist there at the altar before you go back to your place. But the, the, the priest cannot deny you receiving communion um, uh, in, uh, on the tongue because the church allows both. Now, having said that, there were some places during the pandemic that temporarily suspended receiving on the tongue because of the fear of the spread of COVID-19. In most of the places that I've been uh, traveling since the pandemic, those have been lifted. Although I've been to a few places where they say if you want to receive on the tongue, you have to go to a special line for communion or something like that. But again, they're not denying people receiving. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. You're a, you're a, you're a rubber-meets-the-road kind of guy, aren't you, Deacon Harold? Yes, I am. Yeah, well, here's a rubber-meets-the-road <laughs> question for you, brother. Marianne is watching us on YouTube. She says, how can I, as a mother, practice Lent when no one else in the house understands or cares to do it? Oh, that's a great question, Marianne. Uh, very simply, by your witness and example, that is the best thing you do, and especially prayer and fasting. You know, um, Marianne, here's, here, if, if I were you, I would just, you know, I would watch, you know, if you're praying the rosary, um, if you're fasting for them, you know, that, that witness in itself is very powerful because that's showing them. You're not just paying lip service to Lent. You're actually living Lent. You're actually entering into the Lenten experience, entering into the desert with Christ. Uh, So, for example, if they're going to have a meal uh, on Friday, you may say, well, I'm not having meat today. Oh, come on, man. That's just, you know, you don't have to do that. Well, yeah, actually, I do. Or we say, I'm not going to eat today except for one meal, which is fasting, right? Abstinence is no meat, but fasting is only one meal per day. Uh, So, for example, Marianne, I fast every Friday. Um, you know, for my wife and kids. So that may be something that you want to do for your family as a witness to them, to the power of God's love. Uh, Reading scripture, you know, again, watching them, having them uh, not being afraid or ashamed to pray the rosary at home or, 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 or opening the books of scripture and letting them see you do that. You know, they say, hey, by your witness and example, you're showing them that God can continue the work in their lives uh, through the witness of the mother, just like the Blessed Mother, right? She's our main intercessor with God in heaven. You can kind of be that on earth for your family as well. 
833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986 with your question for Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. We head to the Republic of Texas. Darrell is in Houston watching us on YouTube today. Darrell, thanks for holding. You're on with Deacon Harold. Uh, good, good day and happy Lent. Um, my question uh, for the deacon, and it's uh, I, I'm, it's a pleasure for me to be able to ask a question for uh, to you. I, ever since I um, heard about you, I've been, always been wanting to ask you this question because I thought you were most appropriate to answer. It. Is um, um, in my locality, um, I've been kind of swayed. I, I, I was raised Catholic, but it, in my area. I've been kind of swayed to attend a predominantly black non-denominational church. And one of the things that I kind of favor about it is more so the fellowship experience. It's predominantly black. Everybody's the same. They have a lot of programs for the family. And, you know, that, that, ex- that experience is really, it's good. I mean, it's, it's, it's generally good. Though, um, I have, uh, uh, it's, it, it, that's what it is. I'm, I'm apprehensive on attending the local Catholic parish because I feel that there will be a like a fellowship mismatch. They won't have as many programs, and it won't be as interesting for myself and the family. That's the that's my general question. Okay, so you, you, sometimes uh, that's a great question, Darrell. And sometimes I'm asked uh, by people, "Oh, they say, say they say to me, oh, you're a black Catholic," and I say, "Oh, well, I'm a Catholic who's black." And they said, well, what's the difference? I said, when I stand before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and I'm giving him the witness of my life, he's not going to ask me how black I am. He's going to say, did you pick up your cross and follow me? I gave you three talents. I gave you fatherhood. I gave you being a husband. And I gave you the gift of the diaconate. Where's my tenfold, fiftyfold, hundredfold return? That's what he's going to ask. So you have to ask yourself, are you going there? What do you mean by fellowship? Because the fellowship that we experience, the deepest form of fellowship, is receiving our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. You're not getting that at, 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 the, at the fellowship church. Now, yes, there may be wonderful music, sense of camaraderie. That's fantastic. But if you're not receiving Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, if you're not getting that sacraments that Jesus Christ himself left us, then you're not getting the full experience uh, of Christ that the Catholic Church offers. So, yes, you have to, you know, so, again, um, I belong to a church that's multicultural, and we have a a wonderful uh, Vietnamese population. They have a Vietnamese mass. So I understand the need for cultural expressions because we have a Vietnamese community that has a Vietnamese mass. I've been to other parishes that have a Hispanic community, have mass in Spanish, in their language, language, want to to express the faith culturally and in their own language. That's beautiful. But, um, but they're still celebrating in the Catholic faith. So we, we come to the black Catholic experience. It's like, okay, where's that, where's that balance, right? So what I would try to do is find a, maybe a predominantly black Catholic church, Catholic church, you know, um, in, in your area there, um, and, and, and go to that church. Because I think you'll, you'll, you'll get that experience of both. Hope that helps. Yeah, God bless you, Darrell. We certainly appreciate uh, the phone call today. And I I think he makes a really valid point, Deacon, and and that's just human nature. 
uh, for all of yep. us. But you know, one other point of encouragement I would give him is that even if you find yourself in a predominantly white parish, if you want if you want to be around other black people who are going to elevate your level of faith, you know, when you have black families that are in predominantly white parishes, those people are Catholic, man, and they ain't playing. Yeah. And, that's so uh, true. And that'll, that's a really good way to, for all of us to have our faith ratcheted up. Uh, next up is Ivan. He is a first-time caller. He's also in Houston, Texas. You're number one in the Republic today, Deacon. Uh, listening on the Ave Maria radio app. Uh, Ivan, you're on with Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. Hello, good afternoon. I just have a quick question. Um, well, two quick questions. The first one is, uh, I guess the way I was brought up was always fasting, um, the entire Lent from from Ash Wednesday to Good Friday, right? And and then I guess just till this year, I recently was told that it's only Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. So that that's my first question, right? And then okay. the second one, just to kind of throw it in there, I don't know if you want to answer one first. Okay, yeah, I'll answer the first one. So regard to fasting, so um, there's only one fasting day in the season of Lent, uh, and that's Ash Wednesday. Remember, Good Friday is not in Lent. Uh, Lent ends with the start of Mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday, which initiates the shortest church season of the year, which is the Triduum, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. Okay, So the Fridays in Lent are abstinence days. That means no meat on Fridays. The, the exception to, to the, the, the fasting would be uh, what's called ember days. So those are days initiated by the bishop, which are special additional days of fasting during Lent. But normally, uh, Ash Wednesday would be the only day. So there's plenty of room for improvement, right? The church gives us a minimum standard, but we can definitely exceed that. Now, when I was growing up, Ivan, my mom, right, uh, in our family, we fasted Wednesdays and Fridays. That was no meat and only one meal per day. Um, you know, uh, that's back in the, in the 70s. So, but my, but my, that wasn't a requirement of the diocese. My mom just did that. So fasting is very powerful, though, Ivan. I would encourage it. Why? Because that, that hunger that you feel, that, that physical longing and yearning, um, that, what that reminds you of is what you're really longing for and yearning for is a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And when that desire is connected with prayer, prayer and fasting, that combination is powerful. Remember, in one of the accounts when the 72 came back, they said, well, Jesus, we could do all these great things, but those demons over there we couldn't cast out. Jesus said they can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. So I would definitely encourage more fasting during the Lenten season. And what's your second question, Ivan? Thank you for that one. So the second one is, I don't know if you've seen this floating around on the Internet where they say, why we are not allowed to eat uh, chicken, but we can eat the eggs. Um, and then relating that to the, I guess, abortion, where a baby's not a baby till it's born. So I just wanted to see if you'd have a way that I could answer that, uh, if it does yeah, come up so, to me. Yeah, so first of all, you have to remember that chicken, eggs, and things like that, for first of all, they're not human beings. You can't even equate that to abortion. We're not talking about people... People, human beings made in the image and likeness of God that are human beings from the moment of conception until natural death. Um, and so technically, um, eggs are not meat, technically. 
Um, but again, there, there's a there's something called veganism. And for vegans, again, as opposed to vegetarians who don't eat meat, vegans don't eat anything produced by an animal. So they don't, they don't eat butter or eggs or uh, milk or anything produced by an animal. That That's not Catholic, part of the Catholic uh, um, ethos when it comes to, to fasting and abstinence. Uh, that's just a personal preference. God bless you, Ivan. We appreciate the phone call today. Still time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Vernell, you're next, but first, a uh, Forrester rather, is watching us on YouTube and wants to know, how do we explain infant baptism to those who say they want their children to come to the faith in Christ for themselves before they're baptized? They don't see the Eucharist and confirmation as part of that choice. Yeah, that, that goes back to something called no tabula rasa, right, which means clean slate. So, first of all, the Bible doesn't say anything about not baptizing infants, right? Um, in fact, if you look in Acts of the Apostles, it says that the, uh, like the jailer, it says her entire household was baptized, not just the entire household, except for the children who can't, make, yet, can't yet make a decision for Christ. It doesn't say that. Um, and anecdotally, Remember, they tried to keep the children away from Jesus. Jesus said, let the children come to me, right? Unless you're like these, you have, you know, uh, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, uh, and, and now remember, also, Paul says, uh, baptism uh, replaces circumcision. And when was the child circumcised? On the eighth day, right? So if baptism replaces circumcision, a child was circumcised on the eighth day. So therefore, you know, why not baptize children, right? So that's all anecdotal. Um uh, but the thing is this, it, from a practical standpoint for me, um, we we don't say, okay, well, my kid's not old enough to decide what food they're going to eat when they're a baby. So I'm just going to wait till they get old enough to decide what food they want to eat. And, you know, they're not old enough to decide what clothes they want to wear, what school they want to go to. I'm just going to wait till they get old enough to decide for themselves. No parent would ever do that, right? So we, if we make decisions for our children for their physical needs, their corporeal needs, why wouldn't we also make decisions on their behalf for their spiritual needs, including baptism? Back to the phones we go. Verdell is in Bacchus, Minnesota, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Verdell, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. Uh, just a quick question. Do you know when uh, Protestants or Evangelicals started believing that baptism was just kind of a worldly sign and not the removal of original sin. That seems to be their mantra. I've talked to people like that. Do you do you know when that happened, or who did Martin Luther start something like that? Yeah. See, that, that's a great that's a great question, um, Verdell. Uh, see, the, the, there's different Protestant denominations that have different beliefs about baptism and the effects of baptism. So for some of them. Um, baptism is just an initiation into the, the life of faith. 
And as we heard for the in the in the last question, that that happens when you're old enough to make a decision for Christ, and then you're baptized, and then you you kind of formally enter into the faith that way. There are others believe that you don't need baptism at all. You just have to make a profession of faith. You you receive Jesus Christ into your heart and into your life, and that's all you need. That there's no need for baptism at all. Some do baptism because Jesus said, go, therefore, in Matthew chapter 28, 19, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So they do it just because Jesus said to do it. But there's really no depth or meaning behind it for the remission of sin. You see? So, again, it depends on which Protestant denomination um, that you subscribe to is what they believe about baptism. Right? So it's the Catholics that believe that baptism removes the, that stain of original sin. And not only removes the stain of original sins, but fills us with sanctifying grace, which is the grace that we need to get to heaven. Um, and that was something, again, that Martin Luther, I think Zwingli taught something different. Uh, the Anabaptists taught something different than that. So it just depends on what denomination that you uh, subscribe to. Thanks, Verdell. We appreciate the phone call. And, uh Referencing back to our conversation with Jarrell, the second part of his question about the uh, the eggs and the versus the the chicken meat, uh, James from Northport, Alabama, here called to remind us that the eggs that we buy at the store are not fertilized. Ah, but there you go. Yeah. Okay. Uh, very very good. good. Uh, next up is Michael. He's in the great state of Michigan, listening on Northern Apostle Radio in the Upper Peninsula. Michael, you are on with Deacon Harold. Hello. Uh, I got a question about the archangels. Uh, are they saints and angels, or what? what's going on? I don't ever hear about a lot about the archangels. Yeah, so that, that's a great question. So um, there are different hierarchies of angels, right? There are cherubim and seraphim. Uh, there's uh, angels and archangels, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, and virtues. Those are the nine different levels of, of angels. Um, there are angels that, so, that serve closest to God. Those are the cherubim and the seraphim. Uh, so the archangels will be a little bit lower in that hierarchy. Um, now, the archangels, some of them have been revealed. Now, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of angels, obviously. Um, the scriptures are, are very clear about that. Um, but we don't know all their names. So some of the archangels have been revealed to us. The three most popular ones that we see in scriptures are Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. Okay? Um, and, the, and their names tell us something about the mission that they have from God. So Michael or Michael in Hebrew means who is like God. So, of course, we see Michael the archangel most, uh, especially in Revelation chapter 12, he led the battle with the other archangels to cast out Satan and the other uh, angels who followed him, and they were cast out of heaven to earth. We see Gabriel, or Gabriel, means the, the strength of God. Uh, so we see, for example, he's the one that came to the Blessed Virgin Mary and to Joseph and to Zechariah to deliver messages on behalf of God. And then we see in the Old Testament, Raphael, which means the remedy of God, right? So he was the one that often brings healing. Um, and, and so um, you, you don't hear much about the archangels, uh, but there's some that have been revealed to us in the scriptures that have important jobs to inter to uh, intermediaries between God and and humanity. I hope that helps. Mike. And denoting them as saints merely tells us that they're us. in the presence of God, right? Correct. Oh. 
Correct. So so anyone who's in the now the church makes an official designation of human beings that uh, you know, through the canonization process, but anyone that's in the beatific vision, the presence of God is called a saint. That's why we call them Saint Michael, Saint Raphael, and Saint Gabriel. Does that help, Michael? Yeah, that totally answers my question. Okay, there we go. Awesome. Thanks so much for the call. We appreciate it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of uh, open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Emily is in San Antonio, another first-time caller, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Emily, welcome to the program. You're on with Deacon Harold. Hi, thank you. Hi, Deacon. Um, Hi. I just the question. So my parents raised me and my brothers non-denominationally, and I'm a candidate entering the Church this Easter, um, but nobody else in my family is Catholic, and I've had brief conversations with my brother, um, who has kind of fallen away from Christianity altogether, and he believes that, um, to sum it up, that God's grace can be extended to every single person when they die, regardless of the life that they've lived. And so I was just calling to get kind of your most compelling argument um, against that. Well, I'd love to see, first of all, where Jesus teaches that, uh, because I can't find that in the Gospels anywhere, where, where Jesus says, oh, just live however you want, just be a good person, and you'll get to heaven. Right? Because remember the story, Emily, of the rich young man. What must I do to have eternal life? Well, Jesus lists off six of the commandments, and he says, I've done all those since my youth. Did Jesus say, oh, dude, you're good to go. Just put it in cruise control. Just put your life in, in neutral and just coast your way into heaven. Uh, no. Uh, Jesus said, um, you know, with sadness, well, there's more you have to do. He goes, um, "Give everything you take everything you have, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. And he couldn't do it. And so when the apostles asked him about that, what, what did Jesus say? He said the, uh, the, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. See, that, those are words of Jesus Christ. So you can't live however you want. You just can't be a good person and expect to get to heaven. Jesus says the road is narrow and very few will find it. He said the way to destruction is wide. And many will find it. So we have to pick up our cross and follow Christ. We have to live according to the teachings of Jesus Christ and the church that he founded, which is the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith. Um, and and if, if we want to be, in a sense, assured of heaven, right? Uh, but we have to live in his grace. We have to cooperate with the, the sanctifying grace that he's given us, strengthened and nurtured by the, the sacraments, most especially uh, confirmation in the Eucharist, uh, and, and then when we do fall, we have the sacrament of reconciliation that, that brings us back to life again. That That's what Jesus teaches in the Scriptures. So I'd love to see uh, the evidence where he just says, just be good and you'll get to heaven, because Jesus doesn't teach that. God bless you, Emily. Thanks so much, and we look forward to uh, sharing your joy at the Easter Vigil. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. I love practical questions. Kathy is in Des Moines, Iowa. She's listening to Iowa Catholic Radio today. Kathy, you're on with Deacon Harold. Kathy, are you there? 
Tell you what, we'll come back to her in just a second. In the meantime, we'll go to Frank in the great state of Montana, listening on the EWTN app. Frank, you're on with Deacon Harold. Oh, Deacon Harold, love your shows. Thanks for your service as a police officer. Thank you. Um, I question's kind of complicated. I don't want to. I, I hope. I hope I'm asking the question right. So, um, watching Bishop Paprocki the other night on World Over Live, and he was talking about this concept called the fundamental option. So I read about it. And I read on First Things where JP2 condemned it and as to why. And Bishop Proprocki described what the situation was, and he described that it was condemned. I've been having issues understanding the third qualifier for a sin to be mortal. That is full consent of the will. I've been looking at it for three, four years, and it just seems that when I'm in the confessional reading things, it just seems inadequate. It seems like it's really, 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 really hard to fall in the state of mortal sin. I, I guess I'm just not buying it. Um, the only thing that I could ever come up with would be like you being a police officer, the various degrees of, of murder, first degree. I mean, you know, you only know about it. You know your victim. You know the weapon. You know what it's going to cause. You know it's wrong. You go in there and you just do it, and you don't care. I've been told that you really got to tell God to stick it. I've been told that it's pretty easy to fall into that 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 state of of free full consent of the will. I'm just curious. I, I, I've been trying my hardest. I've talked to a lot of people. I don't know if it's me or what, but I just, I think I found my answer. I think that this fundamental option is like the easy way to fall into mortal sin with the third caveat, but okay, let me, let, that, me, let me, yeah, let me jump in here, Frank. Uh, a, cu- a couple things, and, and, and Fundamental option. I, I wrote about this extensively in my book um, called "Behold the Man: A Catholic Vision of Male Spirituality." So let me just quickly explain fundamental option. Fundamental option is a theory that was developed by Jesuit theologian Karl Rotter in his book "Theological Investigations, Volume Six. Okay, so basically, <clears throat> his theory was. You weren't in a state of mortal sin unless you fundamentally opted apart from God. So he called certain sins, which we call venial sins, he called those at the categorical level of the self. And so you can only fall into mortal sin if you're if you fundamentally opt in the deepest part of yourself away from God. Okay? So how does that relate to the criteria for mortal sin, which you're struggling with? So in order for a sin to be mortal, Frank, three things have to be together at the same time. The sin must be grave matter, right? And the typical benchmark for grave matter is violation of one of the Ten Commandments. That sin has to be done with full knowledge and deliberate consent of the will. In other words, you have to say, I know what I'm doing is wrong, and I freely choose to do it anyway. All three have to be together in order for the sin to be what's called mortal or deadly sin in 1 John chapter 5, okay? So 
<clears throat> so you seem to be struggling with that third piece, deliberate consent of the will. So, for example, if I get carjacked, <clears throat> sorry, my allergies are killing me down here in Louisiana. <laughs> if I get carjacked and the person puts a gun to my head and says, drive, and I drive and, and there's a red light, I start to slow down, go through the light. And I go through the light and I hit somebody and kill them. That's grave matter, right? I, full knowledge. I know that if I run this light and hit this person, they're probably going to kill them. But it's not deliberate consent of the will. I'm not freely choosing to do it. The person is forcing me to do it. Forcing me to do something I don't want to do. That's not mortal sin. Because I'm not freely choosing to do it. Does, does that, that help, Frank, a little bit? A little bit, but I think I need to get your book and read about this this fundamental option because I'm being yeah, told it was really you really, 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 really have to be something evil no, to no, tell God. To, no. I think it's a lot easier to tell to have your full consent of the will. I think it's a lot easier than what I'm being told. Yeah, it was condemned by Pope John Paul II in a document called Veritatis Splendor. Uh, uh, we, and that was his kind of moral uh, theology encyclical, and I do talk about that in the book. So, so what I would do is, um, if you can get a copy of the book, it's for, it's it's about male Catholic male spirituality, but I do address the fundamental option in that book. So hopefully it'll help you to explain it, especially within the context of your spirituality as a man of God. And that's Behold the Man, and I'm sure it's available at EWTN's Religious Catalog. You can just log on to EWTNRC.com. Thanks, Frank. We appreciate the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Carla's watching us on Facebook Live, and she wants to know, for a Catholic baptism, do both godparents have to be Catholic? Uh, no. Uh, only one of the godparents has to be Catholic. In fact, <coughs> you have to remember, being a godparent is a, an ecclesiastical office in the church according to canon law. So it's not just, oh, it's Uncle Billy's turn or it's my, you know, my brother John's turn to be godparent. It's considered a, an office in the church. Uh, so it's technically called the sponsor, right? So this person is taking on the responsibility of helping the parents to raise this child in the faith. So the person has to be uh, confirmed. They have to be in a state of grace, receive the Eucharist. They have to be a practicing Catholic. Uh, but only one of the uh, sponsors has to be Catholic. Got a good question here from Stan. He writes in, The apostles were told to go out and baptize, but I don't see anywhere in the Bible where the apostles were baptized. Yes, well... Everything the apostles said and did are not recorded in the scriptures, right? Uh, but we obviously they went out and they gave their lives to die for the faith that they received from Jesus Christ. Um, so I'm sure they went out and, and baptized. We see Paul baptizing in Acts of the Apostles. Um, we see Philip the deacon baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts of the Apostles as well. Um, so I'm sure the apostles went out and baptized uh uh, as well, and confirm, because we see, um, remember, uh, it, it says that they received the, the Holy Spirit, uh, they were baptized, but yet the Spirit had not come upon them. And that's when John and Peter laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So we see confirmation and baptism uh, were two sacraments that were seen 
to be uh, to be done together. There's a very close connection between baptism and the completion or sealing of baptism in the gift of confirmation. So sometimes we see the uh, apostles uh, con- confirming. We can also make the assumption that they were they were uh, baptizing. They were baptized first, and then they were confirmed either by the apostles themselves or by uh, like Philip uh, the deacon. Um, we can probably squeeze one more phone call in if you give us a call right now. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. All right, Mr. Fancy Pants Scripture Scholar. Robert wants to know, why does the Latin Vulgate have three more books following the New Testament? Three more books fo- in the New Testament? Why does the Latin Vulgate have three more books following the New Testament? Hmm, that's a good question. I'm not sure what books it would be. I mean, there's 46 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Um, so I'm not exactly three sure. Doesn't what three doesn't work anywhere. I think that there are, are any of the are any of the apocryphal gospels and things included in the Latin Vulgate? Oh, I would hopefully I was hopefully uh wouldn't think so. I mean, because, like, for example, there's books that are quoted in the Catechism, like the Shepherd of Hermes, right? Uh, it's quoted in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, but it's not considered a gospel because it doesn't focus on the basic gospel kerygma, which is focusing on the on the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, there's also um, the uh, Proto Evangelium of James, right? That's where we get the names of. Mary's parents, Joachim and Anne, again, also quoted in the Catechism, but not included as one of the official books of, uh, of, of, this, of the Scriptures, not included in the New Testament canon. Uh, again, that canon was decided uh, in three different councils, the Councils of Rome in 382, the Count, Council of Hippo in, 390, in, 390, in 393, and then uh, Council of Carthage in 397 AD, confirmed by the Council of Trent which meant from 1545 to 1563. So that's where we get the, the books from. Those other books... Now let me let me throw this Testament. at you and see if this, this sparks anything in your uh, academic memory, but our crack staff has dug up the prayer of Manassas and then one and two Esdras. E-S-D-R-A-S. Okay. Yeah. Nothing there? So, the, yeah, so the apocryphal books in the old... Well, it's considered apocryphal books in the Old Testament according to... The process would be Judith, Tobit, Wisdom, Sirach, Baruch, and one or two Maccabees. Those other books that you're referring to were never considered to be part of the canon of Scripture. Th- those would, those three books would be like what the um, uh, would be considered apocryphal works. Uh, but there's probably nothing against the teaching of the church in those three books. That's why they probably included them. But they would be like an appendix. They would definitely not be considered part of the, the canon of Scripture. Awesome. Andrea, Angie, rather, is driving through the great state of Ohio listening on St. Paul Radio in West Virginia. Um, Angie, a couple minutes left with Deacon Harold. What's your question today? Hi, Deacon Harold. I just have a quick question because um, I was at a, pre- or a retreat this weekend. And the question came up as far as if you choose not to go to Mass, regardless if you wake up too tired or whatever your reason is, that's not a mortal sin. But I was always under the impression that choosing to miss Mass on a Sunday for whatever reason, obviously if you're sick or you obviously can't get there, there's reasons that you can't get there. But if you choose not to go, is that not a mortal sin? 
Yeah. So again, the criteria is uh, for 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 missing mass, uh, it has to be grave matter. One of the commandments very clear. Keep the third one. Keep holy the Sabbath day. Right. So uh, you know uh, we're obliged to go to mass on Sunday. Uh, and if there's again some reason we can't go. Uh, if you're sick, if you're just given birth, if you're, you know, um, traveling and you get stuck, a pandemic, right, <laughs> whatever it is, and you can't get the mass, as long as that's not done with full knowledge and deliberate consent of the will, then it's not a, it's not a mortal sin. But if you get up and say, ah, I don't feel like going today, knowing that I, 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 I can get the mass, I'm able to get the mass, and I know that I'm missing mass, but ah, I don't care, I freely choose to do it anyway— then you're then you're, that meets the criteria for mortal sin. And quickly, we'll head to Annie in the great state of West Virginia, also listening on St. Paul Radio. Annie, really quickly, what's your question for Deacon Harold? How do you get to heaven? <laughs> How do you get to heaven? Angie said her mom's well, ninety years old. Well, first of all, you have to die, <laughs> which, <laughs> which, uh, which, you know. You have to die in order to get to heaven, but you also have to be in a state of grace, right? So you have to be in a state of grace. And so if you if you go to confession regularly, you follow teachings of the church, um, then you know at the end of your life, uh, you know when you're ju- when you're standing before Jesus Christ to be judged, and he, he he's looking at your entire life, um, he's going to look at the state of your soul. And again, if you're if you're in a state of grace. If you've been living the Catholic faith to the best of your ability, received the Eucharist regularly, gone to confession, um, then you, you should be good to go. But ultimately, the, the decision at the end is between you know, God looking at you and the state of your soul and, and your intent and, and your purpose. But, but uh, that's, that's what I would say. Hope and that helps. Some further research from our crack staff on the fly. Uh, those books of Esdras... Uh, there are three of them, are actually the ancient Greek Septuagint version of the Book of Ezra. Ah, there you go. So there you have it. Deacon Harold, yep. thanks so much for being so gracious with your time. Would you leave us with a blessing? May Almighty God bless you and keep you the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media tandem of Ace McKay and Charles Beery. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with uh, Father Wade Menezes talking faith, family, and fellowship on Open Line Tuesday. Until we get together then, God bless.